Hello, my name is Robert Parrish. To those of you who subscribe to Filling the Air with Words, undoubtedly I'm a familiar voice. I helped create this podcast many years ago with my dear late friend, Jane Shannon. The episode you're about to hear is definitely a departure from our sometimes not-so-serious discussions about not-so-serious issues. For the past 10 years in my filmmaking life, I've been involved with the production of a public television documentary entitled Trauma Healers. It's an hour-long exploration of the deadly worldwide epidemic of trauma caused by road traffic accidents in lower middle and low resource countries. Thanks to American Public Television, Trauma Healers is being distributed to nearly 200 PBS stations in the U.S. beginning on May 4, 2021. Here to talk about this very serious under-the-radar issue are two trauma experts from Harvard Medical School's program in global surgery and social change, Dr. Michelle Joseph and Dr. Key Park. Here we go. So Michelle, I always believe in ladies first. Why don't you start, introduce yourself, tell our audience who you are and what you do. Absolutely. Thank you, Robert. It's a pleasure to be here on your podcast today. Uh, My name is Michelle Joseph. I'm from the UK. I'm a trauma and orthopedic surgeon, uh, MD, PhD. I am currently at the Programme in Global Surgery and Social Change, working as a visiting scholar. My work specifically is in trauma systems, strengthening health equity and social justice. I also work with the military as well on civilian military engagement in disaster response and also in trauma systems development. So hi, Robert. Uh, My name is Key Park. I'm a board certified neurosurgeon. Uh, Currently, I am uh, in the a program for global surgery and social change at Harvard Medical School. I direct the policy and advocacy work within this program. I also direct the global neurosurgery uh, initiative within the program. When Key and I met, it was during the making of a film called Trauma Healers, and that film is about to launch. And we're not going to really talk too much about that. I mean, unless I can't keep myself in check about this great work that I was involved with. But thankfully, Key got involved with the project. And then after we did our interview, he also got very involved in working the non-broadcast systems, I guess. And that's how I am lucky enough to know Key and Michelle. So let's start with you, Michelle. What is it about this issue worldwide that is so compelling? Well, I think one of the most compelling things about trauma is that no one is immune from it, right? It can affect all of us, no matter our status, our our socioeconomic status, where we live. We are all susceptible to traumatic injury. And so it's a problem that's universal to all. I think that's something that's key. And yet it seems that there is, in comparison to other diseases, so non-communicable diseases and communicable diseases around the world, it is less spoken about. So everyone on this planet knows about HIV, AIDS, malaria, those epidemics that occur. And yet trauma, so injury, is far greater than all of those things combined. And yet we don't talk about it so much. 
there isn't as much advocacy when it comes to trauma in comparison to HIV and AIDS. We saw how the um, epidemic when it first started with the infectious diseases, how things evolved and there was community empowerment. And now there are people who are grassroots really advocating for change within their communities. We don't have that where it comes to trauma. It is us in academia or those of us in healthcare that work in facilities that talk in these spaces. But actually now's the time to really engage with the wider community. Now's the time to bring in the layman and say, look, trauma is a big deal and let me show you why. Anyone can resonate with the fact that if you get knocked over by a car, it's gonna be problematic. But what people don't understand is the continued impact of that initial injury, how it can affect a generation uh, because they're unable to work and therefore can't pay for their kids to go to school. So there's a massive knock-on effect. So if you're able to prevent that through different mechanisms, then suddenly someone's life is has potential to be great, right? So I think there's an importance there that we can all understand that the visual is required. The uh, widening the community of individuals who are talking about this is required. So that's why I think it is really, really key that we get this message out there. So why do you think, Key or Dr. Park, um, why do you think this has been so under-recognized when the problem is so obvious to, as Michelle just put it, academics and people who work in the field? Yeah, that, that, that's a great question, Robert. You know, uh, so I mentioned that I'm a neurosurgeon and I worked in private practice in the U.S. for a dozen years uh, south of St. Louis where trauma was probably one-tenth of my practice. Most of my practice was neck and back pain, disc problems. Then I had the um, a privilege to, uh, to work in Ethiopia and also after that in Cambodia at, a go at government hospitals and got to see uh, firsthand the burden of trauma, so neurotrauma in my case, head injuries. It, it dominated the practice. That was 75% of our daily, you know, uh, daily activities. Uh, and we're inundated by that. But what, what, what was really shocking to me is the fact that neurosurgeons, at least at the time that I was working in Ethiopia, they were only available in Addis Ababa. So you have 90 million people spread around the country. And the only way to get to that neurosurgeon is in the capital. And then you start to wonder what happens to the ones that were these emergency cases that are happening outside. Do they even get to Addis Ababa? You know, do, do they die? Most likely they die. And the same thing happened in Cambodia. They had started a training program. And uh, besides Phnom Penh and, and Siem Reap, the other towns had, the other cities did not have neurosurgeons. So it, it went from a patient care issue uh, to more of a social justice and health disparities and health equity issue for me. And, and, and that's what, compelled me to actually come back to the U.S. and study public health, not neurosurgery, but public health to really advocate for um, scaling up surgical systems, trauma systems in these countries, because I found it uh, in, in completely morally unacceptable that we living in a high-income country can access these services pretty much everywhere. And then people living in other parts of the world, just it was a death sentence if they had a serious injury. When we look at this issue, and I've been looking at it along with you, not from a professional, uh, at least medical standpoint, 
Why do you think it is so under-recognized? Why is it that, I mean, making this film was a revelation for me. I had no idea until really I met Lou Zirkel what was going on in the world. Michelle, that question's for you. Why is it something that is so under the radar? Um, it's a great question. And I think there are a couple of reasons why. I think unlike other things which are more well-known, there isn't a risk to it. There isn't a risk that we will have a global pandemic of trauma. And so for there isn't a need for health security measures to contain the issue. Uh, and I think that that plays uh, a factor quite, quite heavily as to why it just flies under the radar. There are other more pressing, more uh, acute worrying things. Uh, and I say worrying in the sense of um, it affecting people elsewhere in other may, maybe more uh, privileged countries uh, and like trauma. So I think that's one. The other is that until it happens, it, it hasn't happened, right? Um, and it affects an individual rather than has risk of affecting multiple individuals at any one time. So I think there's that factor as well. Um, the other thing is, of course, prevention is an area that physicians typically don't normally get involved with, and, and yet we should but you're not necessarily taught in that fashion to think of the what if and preventing people coming through your doors. So as a trauma and orthopedic surgeon, if there was no trauma, I wouldn't have a job, right? So in that respect, there isn't really an incentive from a hospital facility-based doctor to work in prevention until you actually understand the other side of the injury and the impact that it has and working in public health and seeing things through a public health lens, then you start to realize that actually it matters. That it, it's all of our jobs to ensure that prevention is uh, a priority as well as being able to treat patients uh, well. The short answer is it's not a health security issue and until it happened, it hasn't happened, so. Why should people who aren't affected, the people who it hasn't happened to, why should they care? Yeah, so that is how you engage people. When you are able to show that actually Joe Bloggs next door having an injury has an impact on all of us is hard unless you start talking about monetary value, start talking about where your taxes go and the impact it has on the economical system in which you exist. So without getting too technical, if an individual sustains an injury, they no longer contribute to the economy as well as they potentially could. That has a knock-on effect for all of us. If there are far higher numbers of people being subjected to traumatic injuries that end up in this uh, state with chronic morbidity, then that has a knock-on effect. Now imagine this happening in a country which already has a very low uh, GDP, very fragile um, political state, a poor economy, that is problematic, especially when it's your core workforce who would contribute to the economy are the ones who are most susceptible to injury. There's a clear incentive there to try and prevent these injuries from happening in the first place. And when you engage people 
role in that kind of conversation, then they start to realize if we could prevent this, we could all benefit because then our money could go to things which we need, such as education, um, you know, better healthcare in other areas, cancer care, etc. I think when you start talking around those factors, it helps people understand why it matters that Joe Bloggs' injury shouldn't have happened in the first place. Key, what can you add to that? Yeah, I'll just add, you know, add on what Michelle has said. She was too kind to, you know, phrase it in the way I'm about to phrase it, which is, you know, things in global health get funded when you align needs of the poor with the fears of the rich, right? So if you know the, the reason that nothing happened during the Ebola virus epidemic until someone actually got on a plane with it and came to the United States. That's when billions started to pour into Ebola containment. For, so a, a head injury doesn't get on a plane and come to the United States. So there's that factor. Uh, so we don't. But so that's what uh, that explains in some ways why it's not on the radar, uh, to use your term. Uh, but you know, there's a couple of uh, ways to think about this. One is just as a from a human nature. You know, from a simple one human being to the other. It is, it is our responsibility to take care of one another, all of us, right? And there's a right-based uh, uh, argument. You know, health is a human right. Uh, everybody's entitled to enjoyment of best attainable health. And I think we all have to work towards that. And then Michelle, you know, alluded to the economic argument, uh, which is a powerful argument in this day and age, uh, that investing in health of people in these lower and middle-income countries is actually good for economic development and ultimately benefits, you know, the high-income countries as well. You know, we all get uh, do well uh, by provide investing in health. You know, it's so interesting when you think of this as a collective. Taking care of each other is such an important aspect of living on this planet, as is taking care of the planet. I want to ask both of you, why is it that you are so passionate? because that's obvious. You're both dedicating your life to this. Why? That's a tough one, Keith. Do you want to go first? <laughs> yeah, I can go first because I get asked this a lot and I have a, you know, I, I can tell you what happened. I was in, as I mentioned, private practice for about a dozen years in the U.S. Very posh life. Um, you know, it's it's a neurosurgeon in the U.S. and private practice is, is 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 earns a lot of money, Robert, and it's obviously very well respected in the community. And from a personal standpoint, I thought I had achieved success that I had set for myself, but there was clearly something missing. And then it was a a, a spiritual journey for me, a journey to look inward and realizing that I had received so much, a great education, blessings in in a material sense. And there was an expectation that those things were given to me. And it was expectation to be of service. So that is a, the Bible verse from Luke, to those much has been given, much is expected. And for me, it was simply that kind of the, realizing that applied to me on a personal level, embarking on a journey to be of service to those that are less fortunate and finding out that this is exactly what I was meant to do. I love that. That's, that's brilliant. He probably doesn't remember this. But my, my journey started really, I was coming maybe two years out of finishing training and 
up until that point, I'd been out to Malawi, been to the um, Cure International, was inspired, wasn't sure how I really fit into it and thought I could perhaps work pro bono per year. And so trained uh, really with a focus on uh, knee surgery. But then I just felt this, it wasn't it. It wasn't what I was called to be doing. Again, you know, Key alluded to that, um, that calling that you have when you know there is a sense of needing to be doing what you are meant to in full authenticity. And it wasn't knee surgery for me. And so I happened to be on a leadership course and the we were put into different groups and I was put into the health group and there was a CEO looking for someone to go out to Haiti to evaluate their trauma service. And I was like, I can do that. So I went out to Haiti and I got there and it was all about changing systems. And it just resonated to my very core. I said, I don't know what this thing is, but this is what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. And so when I got back, I jumped on LinkedIn and I just started searching for anyone who was doing surgery in these places. And I came across Ed Fitzgerald and Key will know who Ed Fitzgerald is, who then put me in contact with Walt Johnson. And uh, he asked me to come out to Geneva. And I came to this roundtable meeting and Key was there. And Hampus Homeless introduced me to Key. And Key said, he won't remember this, but he said, you should apply for the PGSSE. And so I did. And I remember arriving at the PGSSE and one of the statements that Key said, and I'll never forget this, he said, you know when you've reached where you're supposed to be when you've met your tribe and you meet the people who are in the room with you who are absolutely striving for exactly the same thing, for access to better care. And that is fundamentally what it is. If it's in advocacy and policy, if it's at the front line actually delivering the care, it's developing better systems, capacity building, education, whatever it is, it's always in the sphere of having patient front and center. And if you are of that ilk, if that is what you believe, then you're part of the tribe. And that's why we do what we do. I see we're almost out. So final question I always ask everyone and key You'll remember this, I'm sure. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you would like to talk about? I guess what I would say, if, if people are interested and want to know more, uh, they can definitely find us at pgssc.org. We're on the web. Twitter handles will be at the bottom of the podcast. You can find us and just engage. It's all about, it doesn't matter what your background is. If this resonates with you in any way, we welcome all and anyone to just get involved and start understanding what this work is about because it really, really does matter and does make a difference. Key? I do want to say one thing. It's, it's actually a, like a, a fact. If you look at the number one cause for uh, mortality, so why people die, and then you look at by different age groups, if you take a youth, so after age of five to I think up to 29, across the board, number one cause for death is injuries. Mm. And I think it's outrageous that we don't really address that burden as a global public health issue. We should be doing everything we can to protect our children. Thank you so much, doctors, Dr. Michelle Joseph and Dr. Key B. Park of the program in global surgery and social change at Harvard University in Boston, Massachusetts.
To find out more about Harvard Medical School's program in global surgery and social change, please visit pgssc.org. And for more information about the public television documentary Trauma Healers, visit our website, traumahealers.org. I'm Robert Parrish in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for listening to Filling the Air with Words. Thank you.